Last Sunday, we got about halfway through Matthew chapter 20. We even began working our way through a, a kind of a section of Scripture, a few verses where Jesus pulls the disciples off to the side of the road and shares a little bit of his heart about what's coming. They're on the way to Jerusalem. They're on the way to celebrate the Feast of Passover. The chapter really opens with them leaving the Galilee, making their way south from the north, down the Jordan River Valley, before then working their way up through the Judean wilderness. Everyone went up to Jerusalem. Not only was that a way of articulating the, the uniqueness, the special nature of the city of Jerusalem, but it was very literal as well. Everyone went up to Jerusalem because it was in the mountains. And so you're going to go from kind of a lower elevation just north of the Dead Sea. You're going to work your way up to Jerusalem. Everybody went up to Jerusalem. So Jesus pulls the disciples aside. He shares some thoughts. He wants to make sure that they know, again, for the third time, what is coming. Now, what they believe is coming and what's actually going to occur, there is a bit of a disconnect. Yes, the disciples, the apostles, they, they have acknowledged, they've affirmed who Jesus really is. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. But they believe that Jesus, according to the Old Testament prophecies, was coming to establish an actual kingdom, a physical kingdom, that Jesus was going to lead some type of a revolution, a revolt, a rebellion against the Roman occupiers. And because God would be on their side, just as he had been on their side in times past, under the leadership of King Jesus, Israel would, would rise out of their occupation to a dominance. These men, being part of Jesus' inner circle, on their way to Jerusalem, they already know that there's a growing opposition to him. Things are going to reach a boiling point ahead. They don't mind. They believe that that will be the catalyst, that Jesus will have no other options but to lead this revolution against Rome. So they're going to Jerusalem, understand, with a bit of this expectation, not just the disciples, not just the, the A-team, so to speak, Jesus' inner circle, but there are multitudes of people. Again, making their way out of Galilee, they're heading to Jerusalem for Passover, one of the three required feasts. And it's the anticipation of the crowds as well that Jesus was coming to establish a kingdom. We'll see this maybe today, might be next Sunday, that as Jesus enters Jerusalem, they begin to, to cry out, what? Hosanna, Hosanna, the king. And they begin waving palm branches, this symbol of, for the most part, revolution. It's a dicey situation. Now, we worked our way a little bit through these verses. Again, Jesus' third time letting the disciples know what's coming. They don't get it, but he repeats it a third time. Now, I want to take a moment before we kind of breeze back through it and get to the, the part of chapter 20 we haven't examined yet. I want to relook at this, this passage, and let me share a little bit of kind of, kind of my journey this week. So, a lot of times on Monday, I spend my day a bit of recovery from Sunday, uh, and then I, I do a lot of busy work. So whatever busy work needs to happen, uh, from websites to finances, etc., replying to emails, I try to set up appointments on Monday. I don't really get into my Bible study on, on Monday. Monday's a bit of a decompression day. I fill it with busy work. Tuesday, I'll start, you know, whatever may be carried over from Monday, I'll get back to. But then I'll start my, my prep. I'll start working my way through the passage, start studying it, uh, start just, Lord, speak to me. And, and, and I get my processes going. Wednesday is kind of hit or miss. Thursday, I'm, I'm neck deep in it. And I try to take, if the Lord wills it, a, a bit of Friday off. Now, what will often happen is I will close Thursday. 
I mean feeling great about things. That's the goal anyway, that by the time I'm done Thursday afternoon, I can pack up my bag. Like I'm, I'm Sunday ready. T- try to take Friday off, try to take part of Saturday off. It's like kind of my weekend because I don't know if you're aware, I work on Sundays. So by Thursday evening, I like to just close my Bible up, be done. I'm good. And I felt that way this week, <laughs> to be honest. Come back in from the office, just like, how you feel? Are you Sunday ready? I was like, oh, I'm good. I'm good for Sunday. And then Friday rolled around. And I started just continuing to, I'm thinking about this passage. And the Lord spoke to me and kind of gave me, really, the Lord blew up my Bible study. Which is not a bad thing when it's the Lord's study anyway. So he has dominion and he can blow it up. But I want to re-examine something. Because I don't think I actually fully understood why Matthew places these few verses where he does at such a time. It's repetitive to a degree. Okay, Jesus has already predicted what's coming. He's already told them what's coming. Yeah, there's some new details. There's a few new wrinkles. He's making a prediction that's important, whatnot. But like, why here? Why now? What's going? And then I started thinking about the chapter. Again, bear with me for a moment. We're going to recap some things that we've been spending the last few weeks discussing in detail. On Jesus' journey to Jerusalem here, we've, we've noticed that he's had some conversations, some important conversations, some interactions. First, we saw an interaction with this young, rich ruler, the rich young ruler. Again, we're not going to recap the full story. The man wants to know what he needs for eternal life. What must I do for eternal life? He has the right desire. He wants eternal life. The man realizes that this world, what it offers, it's great, that's fine, but I'm incomplete, I'm empty, I'm lacking. He's, he's, he's rich, he's got affluence, he's young, he's got health, he's a ruler, he's got power, but even then he's left wanting. So he comes to Jesus, right question, right person. But he wants to know what he must do which means he misunderstands the nature of eternal salvation and eternal life. Now, Jesus has an exchange with him to break down some of his theology. But ultimately, Jesus, he tells him, again, maybe look back at verse 21 of chapter 19. Jesus said to him, he goes, if you want to be perfect, go, sell what you have, give to the poor, you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Now, we often get hung up on the specifics of what Jesus is asking without looking at the invitation. We get sometimes hung up on like, well, darn. Go sell everything you have, give it to the poor. Like, that's quite an ask, Jesus. And it is. And again, Jesus asks this, he presents this, because he's getting to his heart. He's getting to the heart of the matter. The man's God was his stuff. You want to be perfect? You want eternal life? Well, go sell everything. But the invitation is the same. The invitation Jesus gives to the rich young ruler is the same invitation he gives to everyone that is a believer. That's the come, follow me. We look at and examine and discuss what Jesus tells the man to let go of without spending enough time looking at what he, what he asked the man to grab hold of. He's like, let go of that stuff and grab hold of me. And follow me. And I've never met a person that, that accepted that invitation and ever regretted it. Jesus asked the man to follow me. Now, first he had to let go. And that's the nature of repentance. You know, repentance isn't so much just a turning from, it's a turning to. It's not just a letting go, it's a grabbing hold of. It's not just to stop the direction I'm heading and about facing, but then it's repentance. It's going the opposite way. Letting go and grabbing hold. The rich young ruler had to let go of some things for him to grab hold. 
But the invitation is follow me. Now note that, note that. So in the flow of, of kind of the narrative of how Matthew, Matthew's presenting things, we get this rich young ruler, and he's given the invitation, follow me, follow me. Now, sadly, he doesn't, does he? Instead, the man turned away sorrowful. He made the decision not to follow Jesus. But then right afterwards, Jesus has this exchange with the disciples, to which Peter says in verse 27, look at that, 27 in chapter 19, Peter said to Jesus, see, we have left all, and note, followed you. So Peter's like, yo, Jesus, that guy didn't. We did. Now, they didn't really let go of everything in the same kind of context, but they were following Jesus, right? So we have the rich young ruler making the decision not to follow Jesus, knowing how important that was. And then we have the disciples like, hey, we're here. We're following you. Now, they're literally following Jesus. Keep that in mind. Like, this is not just a, a, like a, a, a metaphorical following or some spiritual thing, which it's true, but they're actually literally following Jesus. When Jesus comes on the shore and he sees them fishing and he's like, hey, leave your nets, come follow me, what do they do? I'm following you in my heart. No, they didn't just follow Jesus. In the, they let the nets, peace, and they followed him. And where Jesus went, they followed now, it's within that context, this, this, this significance, this importance of following Jesus. The rich young ruler doesn't. The disciples make the decision, too, that Jesus does something interesting on the road. Look at verse 17 of chapter 20. Now, Jesus going up to Jerusalem. So that's where he's going. He took the 12 disciples aside on the road and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. Now, following Jesus is important. In fact, it's the most important thing, correct? We see that established in the previous chapter and these two exchanges, one with the rich young ruler and then with Peter. The significance of following Jesus forever, not just life today, but life for eternity. You gotta follow Jesus. And so Jesus, on the way to Jerusalem, pulls the disciples aside and says, hey, it's good that you're following me. I need to let you know where we're going. Okay, so think of it in that context. Guys, you're following me, that's good. That's what we have to do. There's a destination. But I need to tell you what the destination is because you don't fully grasp it. He continues, we're going to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death. Again, there's a new wrinkle to what Jesus is saying here. And again, this is, not, this is not a prediction, this is a prophecy. Jesus is telling them what the future holds, what will happen. And he's very specific. You know, up until this point, Jesus says, you know, the scribes, the Pharisees, these religious leaders, they got it in for me. And they're going to be part of, of, of my downfall. Their, their, their will towards me is ill. Jesus has said that before. But now he adds a wrinkle that would have alarmed everyone. What does he say? He says, I'm going to be betrayed. Now, betrayal is an interesting thing because that's not something your enemy does to you. Betrayal, by definition, has to occur from a friend. So the wrinkle here is, yeah, okay, I've got enemies. You guys are already aware of that. They have plans. They're scheming. But part of the scheme is also that I will be betrayed. And that necessitates the ill will of a friend. And you can imagine there on the side of the road, 
betrayed? They start looking at each other. I mean, who would betray you? I mean, we're in this. We're rolling with you. We're following. Betrayal? You'll be betrayed? Yeah, your enemies will do, will do ill towards you, but one of us will? One of us will be a part of it? It blows their mind. I'll be betrayed to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn me to death, which they did. Now, the interesting thing is that while the Jews could condemn a person or sentence a person to death, the Romans had revoked around 4 AD their ability to enact capital punishment. So while the Jews could condemn a man to death, the Romans had to sign off on the death. The Jews couldn't just execute someone on their own, especially someone as high profile as Jesus was. And we see that playing itself out. We'll see that in the rest of the, in, in the, rest of the book, that Jesus will be betrayed, the chief priests, the scribes will condemn Jesus to death, but they can't carry forth the deed, which is why Jesus says that they deliver him, verse 19, to the Gentiles. So the Jews will have a part, one of you will play a role, but ultimately it'll be the Romans that do the deed. They will deliver me to the Gentiles. And then Jesus gets specific, I'll be mocked, and I'll be scourged, and I'll be crucified. And this is the first time that Jesus mentions the spirit the specific nature of death or mechanism of death being crucifixion. And no, Jesus says, like, the torment that's coming is threefold. I will be mocked. You know, we don't talk about that. We'll look at it when we get there. You know, we often focus on the crucifixion, how brutal that was, and it was indeed. And we look at the scourging, how horrific. Most people would never survive the scourging alone. One of the things we overlook is the psychological, the emotional torment that Jesus went through with the mocking. I mean, from the beginning... The high priests, the religious leaders, they would spit on Jesus. And after a beating, they, they donned him with a robe. They, they put a crown of thorns on his head. They put a scepter in his hand. They, they, they mocked him as a king. They even put it on the sign above his head on the cross, king of the Jews. They mocked him and they ridiculed him and they slandered him. They said false things about him. They lied about him. They brought in false witnesses. Jesus is saying, I'm going to be betrayed. He doesn't mention he'll also be denied. And he'll be abandoned by his friends. The only apostle at the cross will be John. And a group of women. All these big bad disciples bail. He gets abandoned by his friends. He gets betrayed. The religious leaders make up lies about him. They slander him. They speak ill. They mock him. They put a bag over his head and they begin to beat him so he can't defend himself. All this before the scourging. They let the back calligulate and, 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 and the scarring and, the, and the, the scabs adhere to the, the robe and then they rip it off again. That's not part of the normal execution process, friend. And then the scourging and then they make him try to carry the cross and then the execution. And Jesus says, this is what's coming. And then he says, in the third day, he will rise again. It's going to get bad, guys. It's going to get real bad. And we're talking like, this is like maybe two weeks in the future. This is what's coming. This is what's on the horizon. This will be brutal. It, it's going to get dark. But at its darkest, Hold tight, for the light is coming. 
My story won't end in crucifixion. It'll end in resurrection. Now, there's a bigger context, isn't there? Follow me, Jesus says. Follow me, Jesus invites. Follow me is an essential part of salvation, to follow Jesus. Jesus says to follow me. That requires us to let go of things. It requires us to grab hold of him. It requires us to follow him. A lot of people are down for that. I'm following Jesus. They're down to that until, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, they realize that the journey goes through Golgotha. Peter says, we've given up, we've given up, but we're following you. And then Jesus pulls them on the side of the road and says, well, okay, you guys are following me, but let me tell you where we're going. Let me tell you where the journey leads. Let me tell you about this narrow path. And again, we look at what, what happens to Jesus, but understand this is also the destination for us. That in following Jesus, many of the same things occur or will. Now, we've had it good as, as Western Christians. It's true. For generations, Western Christians, American Christians, have had no concept of what following Jesus in a larger historical context has always necessitated. Suffering and pain and betrayal and mockery and execution. Jesus, Paul within the epistles over and over and over again. There is this constant admonition and warning, you will be persecuted for my name's sake. If they persecute me, they'll persecute you. Persecution is an essential aspect of the Christian experience, and it's an, and it's an essential component of what it costs to follow Jesus. To follow Jesus. And again, we haven't had to face much of that within our context. Following Jesus hasn't really cost you much. It's true. Not like other people in other parts of the world that understand this in a way we don't. Now, I will add that I think, and, and, and again, I pray not. I pray revival happens. I pray things change. But you would be ignorant to the reality that there are currents within our culture that make what we believe dangerous. That we, whether it's in our lifetime or at least in our kids, it will, in our culture, in America, cost you something to follow Jesus and to believe the Bible and to hold to the truth. Even today, if you hold to a biblical belief about marriage and gender, you can lose your job. You can be alienated. PayPal can cancel you. Now, again, we haven't had to deal with this. We haven't been betrayed. We haven't had our neighbors turn us in. But we need to understand, Jesus says, hey, you guys are following me. That's great. Let me tell you what the road looks like. It's hard. That's why Jesus would say, and again, in the moment he says, he says, take up your cross and follow me. 
Take up your cross and follow me. That was the chief execution method of the Romans. And Jesus is like, you should be so prepared for the future, you bring your own cross with you. Hey, Romans, it's all good. I got my own. You can nail me. You you don't even need to provide one. I brought one with me. I'm not going to deny Jesus. I'm not going to abandon my faith. I know what it's going to cost. And I know that in persecution, the flame of the church shines even brighter. And I know, according to what Jesus says, that no matter how dark it gets for me, and if my road leads me to Golgotha, that's not the end of my story because it wasn't the end of Jesus's, and I'm following him. Because after death comes what? It comes resurrection. That you can't take anything from me. The world cannot take anything from you. It can kill you, but it doesn't take your life. Yeah, we, it could take all your stuff and close your bank accounts down. And then whether Jesus comes back or we're in some things, you might not be able to buy or sell and you might die of starvation, but guess what? You awake to a feast in heaven, the marriage supper of the Lamb. My belly might, might turn for a day, but it will be filled the next. Because I follow Jesus and his story didn't end at Golgotha. It actually ended in resurrection. You can't take anything from me. I have no connection. You take all my stuff, guess where my treasure is? It's in heaven where moth and rust doth corrupt. I like the old King James version of it. And thieves can't break in and steal it. It's sure, it's secure. It's not dependent upon the market. That's where my treasure is. You can kill my wife, you can kill my kids, you can kill my parents. I will see them again. You have not taken them from me. You know, Paul would said, will say, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That was his, his equation for life, for living. And it's a, brilliant, it's a brilliant structure in the way that the Greek lays it out. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Gain, the word gain, it's, it's literally more of what I was living for. And it's an equation you can evaluate your life. To live is fill in the blank. To die is more of what I'm living for. Well, if I'm living for stuff, when I die, do I get more stuff? No, that's not how it works. If I'm living for fame, notoriety, to die, I get more of it? No. Hate to say it, but in like three generations, no one, not even your family remembers your name. Like you have to do something incredibly famous or infamous For anyone to actually remember you existed or breathed. Let me ask you, what was your great-grandparents' names? You're their kin and you don't remember. So to to live is, to die is more of what I'm living for. The only thing that works in that equation, as Paul realized, to live is Christ. And that's significant and consistent. Because when I die, what do I get? I get more of the very thing I was living for. It's the only thing that works. To live as Christ and to die, I get more of what I centered my life on. And man, when you look at this passage, Jesus is going up to Jerusalem. He took the 12 disciples aside on the road and he said to them, after they said, we're following you, he said, all right, let me tell you where we're going. Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be betrayed, as will his followers. The religious people, they'll condemn him as they do his disciples. The Gentiles will mock them, they do. 
his disciples, and they'll scourge and persecute and crucify, but none of that matters for the third day there's resurrection. Then the mother of Zebedee, verse 20. Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. Now, who is this woman and who are her sons? Well, we've been introduced to them, and we find it consistently presented throughout Scripture that the sons of Zebedee, there were two, and they were part of Jesus' 12. They were James and John. John uh, happened to write the Gospel of John. He wrote three little letters, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John in order. And then he was instrumental in the revelation of Jesus Christ, the last book of the Bible. James ends up being um, one of the significant leaders of the early church. He ends up being the first martyr. He's mentioned in the book of Acts. He doesn't do much. He, he dies for Christ. as the first one. He leads the way. He knew what following Jesus was about. We'll look at that. James and John, here they are. They're on the side of the road making their way to Jerusalem. Again, there's an entourage. There's a posse. There's a whole group of people, some related to Jesus, some not, some you know, part of his, his crew, others just be happenstance. This woman, their mother, James and John, their mother, after Jesus has made this prediction, this prophecy, this is what's coming, she, she pulls Jesus aside. And she does so with a bit of theatrics. She comes to Jesus, she's got her boys, she kneels down, and she, she's wanting something from Jesus. Now, the mother of Zebedee. I, I won't bore you with all of the connecting of the dots and jumping around. This was a pretty righteous woman. This woman will be um, at the cross. This woman will be part of the group that comes to the tomb to finish the embalming process. She's one of the first witnesses of the resurrection. It's likely as a result, she's probably uh, one of the saints that's there to witness Jesus' ascension. Um, she's also probably there for the day of Pentecost. This was a beautiful woman, a saint, a godly woman. And her two boys. This woman is likely, and I would say the predominant um, belief is that she is the sister of Mary, Jesus' mother, which makes James and John cousins. There's a lot of family dynamic here. You find family dynamic with John the Baptist being related to Jesus. James and John as well. In John's gospel, he, he refers to himself as the disciple in whom Jesus loved, and he was likely the youngest. He's kind of the baby of the group. And Jesus, being his older cousin, no doubt would have taken a bit of protection, would have had John with him more often than not. So you have this woman. She's got her boys. She knows Jesus. It's her nephew. Right? She remembers when Mary got pregnant. She remembers the story. She's become a convert. She's a follower. But she comes, and she wants to interject. She wants to make a request. So Jesus said to her, what do you wish? And she said to Jesus, Grant that these two sons of mine, James and John, may sit on your right hand and the other on the left in your kingdom. Now, what would motivate this woman to, to make such a request? I have a theory. Again, Jesus has just kind of dropped a bomb on the disciples, hasn't he? 
aside from just the, the, the specific nature of what he's saying is coming, he's also dropped that bomb about betrayal, right? Which necessitates the, a, a loved one, someone from the inside being a turncoat. Now, we know it to be Judas. But they don't know who it is. And likely, if you had asked them to take a straw poll, Judas probably wouldn't have been one. He was trusted. He was the treasurer. So there's already a bit of a, a mysterious nature. There's a bit of skepticism. People are looking at each other. Jesus is worried about betrayal. Hey, I'm going to die. I'm going to be crucified. This is going to be bad. The Gentiles will be part of it, the religious establishment. But I'm going to get betrayed by one of you. And so they're looking around at each other. Who's going to do that? Who would do such a thing? Thomas. Surely not Peter. And so hearing this, James and John come back, hey, Ma, Jesus' word, there's one in our midst, traitor. And again, being part of the family, I think as mom, she comes to Jesus and is like, hey, I know you're worried about this. Big things are coming. And you already have some skepticism about the people around you. Hey, may I make a suggestion? Yeah, go for it, woman. Why don't you put my son's your family on the right and left. I mean, you need Jesus. If, if there's somebody in the midst, a rat, you need somebody, you need some soldiers. You need some people on your right, your left, that can protect you, that you can trust. There's some logic to that. Well, Jesus answers. He says, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And Jesus directs this to James and John. So the woman asks the question. He turns to James and John because they said to him, we are able. Now, we understand what Jesus is describing here is what's coming regarding his, his betrayal, scourging, execution, whatnot. And he describes this using two different terminologies, drinking the cup and being baptized. The, the idea here is that this is, this is a fully immersive thing that's coming. This is an inescapable reality. This is... We're told the cup of wrath is often used throughout the scriptures as an image, the cup of wrath. Are you able to take this cup? Are you able to experience what I'm going to experience? And it's not just like I'm going to experience, I'm going to be immersed in it, the idea of baptism. I'll be, bab it'll be, I'll be overcome by it. And they're like, yeah, dude, we're, we're, we're with you. Not knowing, again, what they're really saying. So Jesus, so Jesus said to them, verse 23, you will, and again he's speaking to James and John, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give. But it is for those to whom it has been prepared by my Father. Now, two points to that, again, looking with the hindsight of 2020. Uh, we understand, again, James does experience this. He's the first. He gets executed. He loses his life. He's the first martyr for the cause of Christ. He's the first to go. And John happens to be the last. Now, John will die of natural causes, but that doesn't mean they didn't try to kill him. In fact, Diocletian took John, tried to have him executed by being boiled alive in a vat of oil. Problem was, is John was a good old Kentucky Fried Chicken and just bobbed. A miracle took place, and John was preserved. Now, that freaked everybody out, admittedly. He's a bobber. So he gets exiled to the island of Patmos. 
which was a labor camp. That's where he receives the revelation of Jesus Christ, the book of Revelation. John will then spend the final days being carted around the churches of, of Asia Minor, telling about the love of Jesus, and then die of natural causes. Jesus says, what you're asking, yeah, you know, you will be bad. You will experience this. You too. You don't get it. You will. But then Jesus makes another, he says, but, you know, regarding the actual question, my right and my left, that's not for me. I, I don't have that decision. Uh, I, don't, I'm not make, I don't have the power for that decision. Uh, that's for my heavenly father, which to me is really crazy. It's interesting. It means that Jesus isn't saying there won't be someone on his right and left. It's saying that he's not the one that will pick them. The Father will. Which means there will be someone on his right and left. Might be me. Maybe you. And when they heard it, when the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. I'm sure they were. You know what I think that they were displeased with? It wasn't the fact that they had gotten this private conversation with Jesus, you know. It was that they hadn't thought to, to employ their mom. They got their mom. Why didn't we think of that? How do you resist mom? So they're upset. There's some animosity. But Jesus called them to himself and he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. That's how the world works. Yet it shall not be among you. Whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. What a powerful passage of scripture. You guys want to know about the structure of the kingdom? You want to know who's on the right and the left? You want to know your places? Now Jesus has already told them that they'll have places, right? He's already told them that there'll be 12 thrones. They'll sit upon. They'll have a unique role. And yet Jesus is speaking to a much larger idea about greatness. And in the world, greatness is those who take power and use power to demonstrate influence. That is how the world works. you got to have power to inflict influence. It's a top-down. It's how government works. It's how policy works. It's how the world works. On a micro level to the macro level. But Jesus is saying in the kingdom, that's not how it works. In fact, the greatest is those who serve and exert power from the bottom up, not the top down. And again, I think that there's, there's an interesting application for our day and age, because the church is freaking out right now. I don't know if you're aware. How, what do we do with the world changing? The world's changing. What do we do? How do we exert influence? Well, Jesus tells us this. You see, the church has had it, has had it easy in America. Why? We've had the power. We've had the voting block. We've had the money. We've been able to exert influence over America from a position of power and strength. Right? That's how we've exerted change. But what's happened? We've lost our power. 
in America. We are, we've, we've been relegated from a majority to a minority. And I would say for those uh, Orthodox Christians, even more so, which I kind of actually like. You know, it it's always was kind of a cool thing to be countercultural. You know, like in the 60s, the hippies, they were countercultural. Countercultural. And the idea of that is like the culture's going this direction, and we're like, we're salmon swimming against it. And as a result, we look at like the countercultural people, and like, they're cool. They're not, they're not going with the man. They're going against the man. Guess what? That's us now. Because the world's changed. Like, if you really want to be a rebel, if you really want to be like, yeah, forget the man. Wait to have sex till you're married. Nobody's doing that. I'm a revolutionary. I go to church three times a month. <laughs> okay, twice a month. But, I mean, who's doing that? Like, we get to be the cool kids. We're wearing Converse now, man. But the world is moving an opposite direction. And we've lost our power. But does that mean we lose our influence? No, 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 no. In fact, I think it's a good reset. Because Jesus would say, if you want to have influence, it's not have the power over someone. You want to influence someone, serve them. Come under them, take care of them, and love them. Man, I think as a church, we got to start thinking about how that works. Because we can still have influence on our culture. But the way that we exert our influence has now changed. You want to be great? Be the servant of all. Let me define a servant for you. A servant, very simply. Okay, Zach, what is it? Servant, okay, I'm a slave. What does that mean? It's simple. A servant is someone that seeks to make other people's lives better. If you want a practical way of thinking about servanthood, then you got to think, okay, I'm a servant. I don't serve what, I'm a servant. That's a title. So how do I serve my wife? How do I serve my kids? How do I serve that coworker? How do I serve the boss? How do I serve the neighbor? How do I serve others? You find out how to make their life better. How do you make their life better? I, I know that after the week that we had running around, the last thing on earth my wife wanted to do yesterday was laundry. You know what needed to be done yesterday? Laundry. We were all out of underwear. And so... I woke up, not, I'm not tooting my own horn, I'm just giving you an example, okay, I'm tooting my own horn. What did I, I decided, you know what, I'm going to do all the laundry for my wife. So when she gets home, the laundry's done. I can't say it was like purely selfless, I wanted the attention. I wanted a sticker on my chart, thank you. <laughs> I wanted the recognition for it, but again, to serve. To serve. As a pastor. You know, pastors get into a lot of trouble when they begin to look at volunteers as people there to, to help them. 
as opposed to people being there for me to serve and help. With your kids, how do you serve them? How do you make their life better? How do you serve your coworker? Well, find a way to make their life better. I want to finish the chapter with the few minutes we have left, which is going to be hard because this is <laughs> one of my favorite stories. We're told that as they went out of Jericho, so again, they're making their way up through the Judean wilderness. They're on the way to Jerusalem. Jericho um, is, is kind of on the foothills, so to speak. So this is part of the journey, part of, of, of where they're headed. They went out of Jericho. There's a great multitude following Jesus. And behold, two blind men sitting on the road. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, Son of David. Then the multitude warned them that they should be quiet. But they cried out all the more, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, Son of David. So Jesus stood still. And he called them and he said, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, that our eyes may be open." So Jesus had compassion and touched their eyes. And immediately their eyes received sight and they followed him. Uh, this particular miracle is recorded in two other places, both in Mark's gospel and Luke, which is not abnormal, them being synoptic gospels and whatnot. Uh, the difference between Matthew's account, and, and again, Matthew's an eyewitness. He's one of the, the A-team. He's part of the crew. He's walking. So he's seeing this. And, and Matthew's recollection is two men. And that's, that's true. He records it. Mark, who gets his account from Peter, and Luke, who does his own investigative research uh, regarding the stories, they, they centralize on one of the two, mentioning only the man by name, Bartimaeus. Blind Bartimaeus. Likely Bartimaeus uh, was the spokesman and ends up becoming a follower of Jesus. We see that in the other gospel narratives. Bartimaeus becomes part of the story, gets emphasized in the others, but we know that there's two. I love Mark's account of the story a little bit better. I'm, I'm a bit partial to it because there's a few details omitted by, by Matthew that I think are really funny. So here's Jesus making his way through town. There's a, a crew, a crowd. There's this anticipation. There's a vibe. Now, up ahead, probably on a, like a side street, there are the beggars, these blind men that are begging for alms. Likely, according to Luke, they've been, been blind from birth. And, and this is how they live. And they're hearing a commotion. And they ask an individual, like, hey, what's, what's, what's the hubbub about? What's going on? We hear it. We can hear it. But what's happening? This is different. Now, they knew Passover was coming. They were used to crowds going through Jericho. That was, but this was different. Something special was happening. And so someone says, well, hey, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus is coming. And so these men from a distance begin to shout. They begin to cry out. And, and they're, they're using a messianic title, Son of David, Lord Kyrios, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of David, the one we've longed for, we've waited for, we've looked for. They're acknowledging, affirming already a belief in who Jesus is. And they want his attention. They're crying out. Now Jesus stands still. He hears them. And he calls for them to come. Now, again, Matthew doesn't really paint this. Mark does a little bit better. Word gets to these guys, specifically Blind Bartimaeus, hey, Jesus wants you. We're told he throws off his robe, he gets up, and he goes running after Jesus. 
problem? He's blind. Imagine the scene. First step, he hits the garbage can. Boom, he's rolling over. And he runs into someone, a little old lady trying to cross the street. I mean, this is like a linebacker trying to go through a line, you know? I mean, he is getting blown up. But there's this, Jesus wants me. And he throws off his, and he goes running. I would have been laughing. This blind guy running, tripping over, but he doesn't care. Jesus has called him, and he gets to Jesus. And again, it seems as though there's two of them. Bartimaeus is the spokesman here. Two blind guys running down the street. If I flipped the lights out and told you to run through this room, it would have been dangerous, right? Guy's a bloody mess, you know. But he's there. He falls down. Jesus is like, well, what do you want? <laughs> I want to see. I know you do. And he heals him. Now, we read a story like that. And it's just so easy to skip over the awesomeness of what this in- entails. You know, when you have a baby, you know, they, they, can't, they can't really see. Their eyes work perfectly. You know, there's, there's nothing mechanically wrong. The engineering's good. But like a baby, it takes time for them to see. Because they start to see shapes, and they see vertical and horizontal lines, and then they begin to process colors. And like when you look at a baby, you're like, oh, and they're like, they don't see you at all. They're like, there's somebody in my face making weird noises. That's what the smile is. It's not that you're cute. It's like, you're a weird person just making clucking noises. But then as the child grows and as they begin to develop an archive of images, they begin to see. Now, now that's also what's pretty stinking cool. So you, you, your eyes, through some awesomeness, get an image that then gets relayed through electrical signals to kind of a display in your mind that helps you then process exactly what you're seeing. The way that that works is that over time, you're, you, you, you end up creating a chemical storage of images that you can easily recall immediately. It's why, have you ever thought of this? Um, when you're sleeping, you dream and you recognize people? How do you recognize? How do you see the person in your dream? You're, it's not from your eyes. Where are you getting the image? From this incredible catalog of images that you've stored in your brain. I was in a coma, I had some crazy dreams. Very vivid. I saw a lot of you. I had to see you to see you because I had an, an image of you. Process. Some of you were skinnier than you are now. But there's the way that it works. Now, these guys have been born blind. They were born blind. But instantly they could see. Which means it's not just that Jesus corrected whatever mechanical issue was causing their blindness. Which he did. And it's not just that Jesus restored the electrical signals from the lenses to the screen in the brain. It's that Jesus instantly provided them an entire catalog of images so that they could see immediately. The the, the miracle is absolutely astonishing. It's radical. It's not that Jesus just fixed their eyes. It's that he gave them sight 
so that they could process the world that they were seeing. You know, of all the miracles of Jesus, the healing of the blind is the one that's repeated the most, documented the most. And I think that that's not an accident. Why? Because it is a perfect example of what happens when we give our life to Jesus. We're born blind. That's what the Bible says. And we're running through life without the ability to really see what's actually going on around us. And whatever happens, we hear Jesus, and we know that Jesus can fix it. Jesus can give life. Jesus can give not just sight, but help me process things. And you hear Jesus' call, and you go running. And Jesus touches you, and immediately something changes. Life, regeneration, rebirth. We have a lot of names for it. But for the first time, and some of you can relate to this, for the first time when you gave your life to Jesus, you saw the world entirely different than you did the day before. Everything changed. You're like, I didn't even know this was here. It's because Jesus not only fixed what was broken, he not only helped you see, he gave you sight. And Bartimaeus follows Jesus. It's an amazing miracle. I encourage you this morning. The road to destruction is wide. It's because those that transverse it are blind. And there's grace to that. You're free to go merrily along to destruction. But if you hear his voice, and maybe you did this morning, will you come? Because Jesus will provide you sight. Now the road is narrow, and the road is hard. And the road can't be transversed if you're blind. You have to see. But what do we see? We see Jesus. We see Jesus. And in that instance, everything changes. And if you doubt me, if you doubt me, what do you have to lose? What do you have to lose? Honestly, think about it. So, Father, Lord, we just let that settle.